Welcome. You're listening to another episode of AML Conversations, where we sit down with some of the brightest minds in the financial industry to explore topical matters around financial crime and compliance. We hope you enjoy this discussion and please be sure to subscribe for more. Jenny, thanks for joining me today. Really appreciate you taking some time. Uh, we had mentioned to you uh, a, few, a few weeks ago, we have this project that we've been doing, empowering women, uh, women in a empowering together women in AML. And basically, it's it's really been enlightening for the AML community. So um, you were recommended by a couple of colleagues of ours as somebody who both has done quite a bit, but also has a somewhat unique uh, career path. So first up, uh, I know you're at Silicon Valley Bank. If you don't mind, talk a little bit about your current role. And then I want to ask you sort of how you got there. Sure. So I am the head of investigations at Silicon Valley Bank. So that includes our investigations, anti-money laundering investigations, and internal investigations. Um, also do a lot of work just kind of bank-wide supporting new products and services and determining what the appropriate controls are um, to manage the risk associated with that. I came to SVB um, in 2016, so I guess just about six years ago. And, you know, how I got here was a friend of mine knew that they were hiring and um, I had heard some good things about the company. At that point in my career, my priority was to find a bank um, where I, I really felt like the culture of the company aligned with, with my internal values. And really all the interviews, I just asked questions about, um, you know, the, the values of the company and how those values were embodied. And um, I just felt like it was a great match. Um, it was a 49 mile drive from my house and it was a lateral move, but, um, you know, I thought that, I thought that it would be a, a, a great place for me and I turned out to be right. So really grateful to be here. That's great. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, was at Silicon Valley and now is, uh, at Truist, uh, bank and speaks very, very highly of his time there. So that certainly confirms what we've heard from him and others. Um, so, you know, you're a lawyer by trade, you have a law degree. Talk a bit about your career journey, because even today, you know, 10, 15 years ago, AML was not exactly a, it was a career possibility. It's much more now than it was then. How did you, how did you navigate your career to where you are today doing financial investigations, both obviously with the law degree, being at some other institutions in the past? Talk, walk us through a little bit of that. Yeah, so I went to law school with the intention of being a, a criminal prosecutor. Um, and typically how that works is after your second year, you obtain a paid internship. You work for several months at that internship, and then you're usually given a, a full-time offer to come back after your third year and, and the completion of law school. Um, this was in 2009, and so the economy wasn't doing so well. I had a great paid internship um, with the Ada County prosecutor in Idaho, had a great experience there. Um, but across the board, uh, employers decided not to make those offers at that time because there just wasn't funding for those roles. So um, I go back to law school in my third year, really not knowing what I'll do now. Um, I probably applied to over 50 jobs, you know, tailored every cover letter, changed my resume, you know, made phone calls, emails, follow up, didn't get any bites. Um, so in the spring, I just really started broadening my search for anything where a law degree um, was of interest to the employer. Mm -hmm. And I came across this anti-money laundering analyst job um, at American Express in Phoenix, Arizona. And I wanted to live in Phoenix. And that really sounded like a, a great fit for me because I loved 
the investigative aspect of, you know, being a prosecutor. And I loved the idea that I was contributing to the greater good, but I had had some experiences at the prosecutor's office that were emotionally very jarring in terms of, you know, the proximity to crime and, and egregious crime. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll take a shot at this and then we'll see what the legal market does, you know, um, over the next year or so. So I took the bar exam. I started the very next day at American Express. At the time, they were really building out, um, you know, a state-of-the-art AML program. And they were bringing all kinds of people in. They were hiring, you know, 10, 12 people per month. Um, and it was just an awesome place to be to, to, to gain a foundation in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the training program and the concepts that I learned there. Um, and then it, you know, kind of just took off from there. By the time the legal market had improved, I felt like I had really found my place and that I wanted to be an AML professional, um, you know, in perpetuity. That's that's great. Um, one of the things that challenges uh, we lawyers is when we go into jobs like that, if we don't have a business background, trying to figure out, uh, you know, banking products, how, how they work, what's the relationship to, you know, compliance, uh, obli legal obligations, those sorts of things. Um, how did you navigate that? Because even now it's probably even more challenging if you're just starting this year with fintechs and crypto and digital, all versions of digital assets, trying to understand all that, even if your bank doesn't do those, what was that learning curve for you like? Or was there one or it was just something that, nah, that, that was not too hard for me? Yeah, I think the benefit of joining a place like American Express was that most of the products were consumer products that I could understand pretty, pretty easily. You know, yeah. um, I could think about, OK, if I was a small business owner with this small business credit card, would it make sense for me to use it in this way? Um, when I came to SVB, the learning curve was incredibly steep because I didn't understand private equity or venture capital um, or, you know, some of these really complex loan structures that we have. Um, and so, you know, that was just a lot of side by sides and reaching out to experts and asking questions and, um, you know, trying to make sure that I that I understood. But, you know, in terms of being an attorney and joining a corporate environment, I think the more difficult aspect was that I had just been taught to be pretty aggressive and assertive in everything that I communicate. Um, and, you know, that was not the best match for corporate America. I had also grown up in a really small town where I didn't know anybody who had a corporate job. Um, and right. so I had, you know, I think a, a real rough entry where, you know, the way that I was coming to work and carrying myself wasn't, you know, a successful or optimal way um, to, to be, to be interacting. And so, I was really lucky to get some really honest, solid feedback in those first few years. And, you know, I think um, I, luckily I, I had the confidence to accept that feedback, understand it and implement it um, and, and not really just let it kind of bury me, you know. That's interesting because you can get to a situation and I've worked for a couple of corporations where uh, if the personality doesn't fit, sometimes you don't have access to a mentor or a sponsor and people will just let you flounder. Um, they don't always see, well, there's value here. We just have to sort of steer that person. So it sounds like with the feedback that you had some uh, pretty good mentors. Yeah. You know, I think I've, over the years, I've, I've come across people who are, who are maybe stuck and they feel like they can't move forward and they don't understand why. 
And they say, you know, everybody tells me I'm doing a great job, yet I can't get a promotion. And, and, you know, what's happened is that I think people haven't been super clear and upfront with them about where their limitations are. And because I received the benefit of honest feedback, you know, early that made all the difference in my success, I've always, you know, returned that favor to folks coming to me from a, you know, an uh, where they're truly curious and want to know what they need to do, I will always tell people, you know, this is this is the perception um, as I've understood it. And then from there, it's up to them, you know, whether or not those are changes that they want to make in their career or or not. Um, but people need the information to make the change, right? Sure, sure. And you, you referenced uh, a blue collar upbringing. So I'm curious uh, if you talk a little bit more about that from this standpoint, uh, both uh, about maybe your parents generally, maybe not specifically, and relatives, was it very unusual for people in your world to go the route that you went because uh, growing up in a blue collar town is vastly different than a sort of a mixed town where there's some blue collar and white collar and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, both my, my parents, you know, attended, I think like the quarter of college and then dropped out. Um, they both were small business owners. My dad's a home builder. My mom was a photographer. And so I certainly witnessed, um, you know, business savvy and incredible work ethic. I mean, my parents have built an amazing life for themselves, you know, without a, a, a robust higher education. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I, I certainly didn't see folks kind of moving through a corporate environment. And I really had just no understanding of how that looked. I think we all like, you know, if you don't have direct experience with something, oftentimes your, your understanding of it is from television right. <laughs> and right. right. Which typically is very misleading. You know, you see all of these like very tense corporate environments and that was what I expected it to be like. And, um, you know, that, that that didn't end up being the case. Um, but yeah, it's it it certainly um, you know, has has helped me understand other perspectives though, and and really be grateful for the opportunities that I have. You know, you mentioned um, I'm paraphrasing that you were somewhat aggressive in the workplace until people sort of <clears throat> steered you. Um, did you notice that there was a diff was there a difference from your perspective the way people reacted to you versus a male that might have been have the same personalities is did you notice that because we've heard that quite a bit from from other inter people we've interviewed you know it's hard to say I I look back and I think about the some of the ways that I communicated things and I think oh if somebody was communicating that way to me now you know I might um be a little taken aback so I'm so I'm not quite sure. I do think that we all tend to accept that behavior more in men generally, right? Research tells us that. Right. Sure. Um, and and I remember early on talking to people about the feedback I was getting, you know, and some people saying, "Well, that's because you're a woman," you know, that's not fair. And I I I, I had to reconcile like what is my control in this situation? You know, does that matter? Right. I, 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 maybe do I wish it was different? You know, is there still benefit to me hearing this feedback and implementing it? Um, and I think the answer is absolutely yes. You know, um, and, and I've just tried to, I think in my career, help people understand that um, the way that we communicate things, how we do things, not what we do um, is what's truly important. And, and I think everybody's made tremendous progress in terms of viewing people more equitably and, um, right. you know, not applying, I think, some of those like unconscious biases, but I'm sure we still have a ways to go. 
How important is networking? Because one of the things that the Empowering Together group has proposed that we figure out, and we started this before the pandemic, so some of this stuff hasn't been implemented yet, but there's other groups that are doing this already. The importance of uh, networking with other uh, female professionals, it doesn't have to be female, but just just so people can share experiences and, and challenges. Do you have that opportunity either at the bank or in where, where you're located, or is that something you're, you're looking to put together? Yeah, I think SVB's done a great job of bringing people together. So they've had some initiatives for for female leaders to kind of mm-hmm. gather and hear from other female leaders, um, and you know, really understand. I think how to continue to better our careers and support each other. And one thing is that I have had um, some really great um, female friends at SVB that are in positions of leadership, and I really have an awesome network where I can reach out to any of them at any time and kind of you know, talk about work, talk about life. Um, but it's been really wonderful to have people that, you know, maybe understand a little bit what you're going, going through and in a different lens. Um, oh yeah, that's great. Um, you know, you mentioned, uh, we talked offline and then a little bit here about some of your previous work, obviously you worked in a criminal prosecutor's office. You, you were at Amex doing a variety of roles. One of the roles was training. And I'm really curious of two things. One is, um, obviously, we know the importance of training. It's a key component of uh, the pillars of AML, right? You have to have training and you have to really have targeted training. So when you were creating that, uh, what's your take on what works from training purposes? Because I can tell you years ago when I was at a bank, it was once a year, you did the 20 minute online 10 questions. Obviously, that's totally uh, not relevant any longer. But when you were putting this together, what were you trying to do? Because I, I assume because you were dealing with investigators, you had people that had been in law enforcement, people that had been analysts, maybe some people have been lawyers. So they come from all different backgrounds. So how did you put a training program together that elevated all of them, that was relevant to all of them? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that, you know, in general, providing training, it needs to be interactive, right? You need to be opening it up and getting feedback from people, you know, calling on people, making sure that they're engaged. I think the, right. the model of kind of the 10 questions online is, is not our most effective. It's maybe right. the most efficient, right. um, but, you know, a lot and, and you need to you need to make it fun and you need to make it engaging. So, you know, anytime that um, me and my training team was was getting ready for a training endeavor, there was always some ice breaking at the beginning. And I know that that sounds silly. Like, do we really need to do this? But in my opinion, it was one of the little things that really made people buy in uh-huh. and pay attention. You know, people were laughing early on. People felt like, OK, we kind of know each other a little bit. Um, and then from there, you know, you can kind of reference back and pull people back in by speaking to things that they may have already mentioned in the class. You know, um, yeah. in general, I just think like effective communication is always about kind of meeting somebody where they're at. So understanding, you know, thinking through where is this person coming from and how might they be understanding what I'm saying or or misunderstanding what I'm saying based on that experience. Um, and hard to do with like a really large classroom, but typically we were only working with 10, 10 folks or so at a time. And I think that gave us the chance to um, really kind of work with people um, on a one-off basis to, to ensure that they got what they, they personally needed. So going back to your role there, but your role now managing a team. So mm-hmm. I, I can tell from the few things you've said already that 
obviously you are very focused on people's uh, skills, but also the chemistry, also their attitude. So you're probably a very engaged manager, but tell us a bit about what makes a good manager, what you think, let's say, what do you think you do well and what you think you can improve upon to make sure everybody that is working for you and working for the, for the institution, of course, is being as successful as they can be? Um, you know, one thing that I think that I've found um, is that being optimistic is, is critical. Um, you know, I think some of the folks in our industry tend to be a little more cynical. It's kind of the nature of the work, right? Um, we're dealing with people who aren't doing the right thing. <laughs> right. Um, and you're, and you're looking at that all day. Um, but you know, the truth is, is that like almost anything that we're dealing with at work can be accomplished one way or another. And when you express that sentiment to your team, they believe it, they, they embody that success already in their head, you know, and then, and then they're able to perform in a successful way. Right. Um, so I feel like that's been one thing that I've always tried to be consistent with not saying you want to be blindly optimistic and, you know, sugarcoat things. Cause you don't, you want to be honest about things, but you also want to, you know, communicate your belief that we'll get through it and we will succeed. Um, and I think that that's been a, a really key component of, of my organization's success is that everybody knows that, um, we can accomplish anything if we do it together. Sure. Um, and yeah, it's, I, I'm, I'm proud of the folks that we have in our org that, that also embody that. That's great. Um, so given your role and given what we've just been through and to some degree still dealing with, and that's all the fraud from from the pandemic, um, all the adjacent issues that came from that. We have the um, AMLA law that was signed last year. They're still working through some of the regs and some of the studies and strategies. So a lot of stuff can potentially change. I like to tell people that for me, since I've been doing this so long, most potentially the most dramatic changes since the Patriot Act 20 years ago, because that really ratcheted up a lot of non-traditional bank requirements that, that frankly weren't being in, in, uh, implemented before. So given all of that, what's uh, what's sort of your your big picture strategy just in terms of dealing with all, all the fraud issues? Uh, we, we have, as you know, uh, priorities issued by the federal government uh, in June of 2021, and fraud is one of them. Yeah. So it doesn't tell you a lot because it's a broad umbrella term, but obviously it's garden variety fraud, it's wire fraud, it's all sorts of uh, unusual activities. So from your perspective, both uh, as leading a team, but also protecting the institution, what's sort of your high level strategy, both from a communication standpoint to your leadership that, hey, these things are all going on and I'm sure there's regular reporting, but also to your regulatory supervisors so walk again super high level tell us tell you how, how you're managing that because a lot of folks are being challenged by that and they, it's just like adding more and more to your plate uh but yeah. you can't ignore it right yeah i mean so i'll start with just kind of operationally speaking so you know in the the midst of the pandemic we saw fraud rates you know just skyrocket. Everybody did. And we simply weren't staffed to manage the, the detection volume um, of, of those incidents. So one thing that we did was cross-train every single AML investigator to be able to also perform fraud detection. Um, and that was 
immensely important um, in terms of us being able to keep up with volumes and, and also do a sound job, right? Those skills that we utilize in AML really translate well into being able to detect fraud. Um, and so I think to the extent that people can cross train and create those kind of business continuity plans so that when, you know, things go through the roof, you've got help available is, 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 is key. Um, secondly, I think that we tend to implement tools and algorithms to identify fraud. And sometimes we forget about some of the more basic components that could could draw our attention to like uh, maybe a root cause of a, a particular fraud method or, you know, an indication that a payment is clearly fraudulent. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would just encourage people, you know, to, to, to constantly revisit how it is that they're monitoring for fraud and whether there are any more basic concepts that they could implement, whether that be in your technology or just in the procedures that you apply right. to the actual payment review. Um, we've had tremendous success, I think, thinking through some of those things and rolling them out. And, and you know, I just want to, you know, convey that, that it's important not to overcomplicate it, right? Sometimes we overlook the most basic methods um, to, to really help us succeed. Um, so, and then in terms of it being a national priority, I think, you know, when I was reading through the priorities, it was maybe the one that I felt the most comfortable with because we already have all of the, it's it's self penalizing right we don't we don't want our clients to be victims of fraud so we have these these robust programs already in place. I think the area that everybody needs to make sure that they're thinking about though is client perpetrated fraud. Um, so and that needs to include you know embezzlement um, right. you know for for SVB that could be something like misuse of investor funds um, you know there's all kinds of different schemes where your client is really conducting a fraud scheme. Um, and I think that that's something that we tend to gloss over. I know it's something that I have to constantly remind my leaders to be communicating to the analysts and looking for, um, because I think if you're looking at something with a fraud mindset, you're thinking of, was this authorized rather than, you know, is this how this money um, should legally be being utilized? Right. Um, I, I I'll get you out of here on this one. You're, you said you're self-described idealist idealist and uh, very optimistic. If you're trying, if you're talking to folks in school that are looking at career paths, um, male or female, how do you pitch them? What do you tell them that the, AM, the AML profession, the AML community, why that's uh, a lane they should consider going into, given, given what you've experienced in your career? Yeah. You know, I, my perspective has always been that it's kind of the best of several worlds. You get to contribute to the greater good. You get to partner with law enforcement. You get to help them uncover, you know, massive criminal rings and, and, and bring those people to justice while also being part of a, you know, a, a, a corporate entity where there's a ladder to climb. There's a lot of, you know, just career growth that's possible. And then if for whatever reason you find that, you know, AML specifically isn't your your great passion, there are so many other roles then within banking, within law enforcement, within law, that that experience translates so well into. Um, and I just tell people all the time, like, I just feel like the luckiest person to have stumbled, truly stumbled into this industry um, because it just provides um, really a, a, a great balance between um, contributing and also kind of being part of a, a business. Um, which is just really pretty cool. That's that's a great way to uh, encapsulate that because I always talk about 
we deal with elder abuse and human trafficking, things that we can improve society. But you also are giving another benefit, a personal benefit. Hey, it's also part of a corporation. And so you can learn because there have been a few of your colleagues and peers that have started in an AML space, but moved on to something else within the bank because they learned a lot about the products and services and they, they decided maybe that's a lane we want. So, um, and sometimes it happens the other way. So I think that's great. Jenny, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to having you an active member of our project going forward. So uh, stay safe and thanks. Thank you, John. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of AML Conversations brought to you by AML RightSource. To make sure you're staying up to date with what's going on in the industry, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to get the latest episode.